Hello and welcome to the MIT Press podcast. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Chris Krauss and Hedy L. Colty, who between them and Silver Lotringer run Semiotext, one of the smaller presses that MIT Press distributes. The MIT Press began distributing Semiotext in 2001, but the press itself has existed in various forms since the mid-70s. In that time, they have published figures such as Jao Deleuze, Felix Guattari, Kathy Acker, John Cage, Michel Foucault, Eileen Miles, Mackenzie Walk, and Paul B. Preciado, among many others. In the following conversation, I asked them about the history of their publishing, how they operate, and some of their forthcoming projects. As ever, thanks to Kristen Galano for the soundtrack, and if you enjoy the podcast, make sure to check in every Friday for a new episode. A good place to start might be if you could both briefly explain to listeners that might not know how long you've both been running Semiotext and what you both do at the press. So, yeah, Sam, I got involved with Semiotext, I guess, in the late 80s. It already existed as a press. Sylvia Lerchinger had converted it from the journal to the foreign agents imprint in 1983 when you know by 1983 he found that there wasn't like this same pool of people hanging around new york wanting to do volunteer work on a magazine for a year or two at a time things had changed and people were kind of following their own paths and he was looking to continue but to do something more compact that he could do independently and he had strong and important relationships with French theorists like, um, like Jean Baudrillard, Félix Guattari, uh, Lyotard, and others, whose work really hadn't come out in English barely at all, let alone been absorbed into the academy. So he saw kind of a possibility of a mission there to present the work in a shorter form that would be accessible in what his world was at the time, which was more like the the downtown New York club fashion and art world. So he, alongside um, Jim Fleming, who had an an anarchist press called Autonomia at the time, the two of them teamed up to create the Semiotext Foreign Agent series. And that went really well. So when I met Sylvia in the 80s, that was already underway and very, very influential and respected. Um, It really, foreign agents had a lot to do with introducing French theory into America, into the art world, the academy, and and beyond. Um, But I, 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 you know, I felt that there was an absence. I, I so admired and respected the imprint that I wished it was more reflective of, you know, my reality, which was different. You know, it was more literary and it was more female. And I did notice that there were, there were no female critics or theorists published in that series at all. Um, and so I thought, well, there's no female French theorists that I'm interested in. They're all psychoanalytic and that's not my, that's not my bent. So I thought, well, there's an awful lot of really interesting female writers um, that I know in New York. Um, people around the St. Mark's Poetry Project, the East Village, you know, people like Eileen Miles, Lynn Tillman, Kathy Acker, Cookie Miller. Some of these people, of course, have become really extremely 
prominent and well-known, but at the time it seemed like there was a need for their work to circulate more widely. And so I was hoping that maybe if we started a second imprint to um, present their work, that we could confer some of the prestige on French theory on this kind of East Village female writing. And Sauvier was completely down for that. We, we made up a corollary imprint called Native Agents, and so was Jim. He was very supportive. Um, and so we kind of made up a story that this was going to be the practice. If French theory was giving us new models of subjectivity, this was going to be the radical practice of it. And so we did about 10 of those books. Then I, I moved to LA in the late 90s, and things changed, and I started to broaden out a bit. And Sylvia and I met Hetty around that time in the early 2000s. Hetty became involved, and initially as a designer, but then very quickly as a co-editor and a managing editor. And the press changed, and I think really finally became what it is now and you know what it will be con continue to be for the foreseeable future which is i don't know hetty would it be right to define it as you know a kind of inspired amateur boutique press yeah i think that that's that's uh, that says says it all i met uh, silver first in the late 90s when i went to art center uh, college of design in los angeles before that i was working in the film industry as a sort of assistant accountant and i did various jobs on various movies at some point i decided to go back to school uh, in america and uh, that's why i met silver he was doing a presentation on uh, on foucault he had a vhs of a foucault uh, interview and he was going to talk about Foucault, but then they never really managed to play the VHS, which I think was in the French format. So we talked after the presentation, and later on, I got sort of hired uh, to design um, the, a magazine he was editing for, for the school that had text from students and also things that Semiotex was working on at the time. And that's where I first read um, Chris's work. Uh, you had this piece about Bo. The housekeeper. The housekeeper, yeah, that was very beautiful. So I designed that, and then he asked me to design more books for them as I was finishing school. And then when I was finished with it, I just became the sort of in-house designer. And around 2004, I think by, by that point, the press was a little bit dormant. Not dormant, but... There weren't as many books that were coming out in those early 2000s, maybe one or two books a year. It's true. There was a big backlog of projects that were unfinished. Yeah, and things that were kind of like, that were like sort of never going to be finished. True. Like Penny Arcade or the David Warnovich book. Or yeah. They were kind of lingering uh, in limbo. And uh, you, at some point, decided that, Chris decided that it, was going to be a sort of that we needed to either drop it or sort of re-professionalize it or have a structure. There was that moment, I think around 2004 or 2005, where, I mean, it kind of languished and um, Silvera had an opportunity, Silvera and I had an opportunity to put a little bit of personal money into it to kind of take it to another level, to kind of give it a little seed money for a year and 
we did that. And so, Hedy, you started working as managing editor as well as co-editor. And, you know, and we had a few more people around helping us. And we tried to really kind of, you know, make a more coherent list, you know, to salvage what was like in the background. I think one of the first things that, well, I remember two things that we did together that year. One of them was your idea to represent some of the backlist, French theory backlist in the history of the present series in a larger format, because those little black books weren't really viable anymore. But then artistically, there was this other idea that we had together um, to do these kind of archival projects. And that was really interesting because you had a strong background in doing that. You had just finished the Gary Lee Boas project. Yes. Um, Starstruck, which was like this kind of magnificent, enormous effort to salvage this person's work and present it in the present. And I feel like, you know, we learned a lot from that project and transposed some of that into doing the books that we did with David and with Penny. Yeah, so, so um, redoing these books in this new format, some of these uh, iconic titles with new introductions, and um, that actually gave us some, um, some money, reordered by bookstores. And then we added a few titles from that period that could have been maybe published back then and still felt more or less relevant and to keep it more alive. And so that was the start of this sort of new incarnation with five to six books a year. And then that sort of morphed into 10 to 12 books a year. Right. And they looked really good. I mean, the, the format that you came up with was the contemporary introduction and also the cover was always a contemporary artwork that yeah. fit the book. It really did succeed. I mean, The History of the Present was a great title for this series because it, it really did at that moment eliminate the origins of things that were current. Yes. And then I think we also started having, having revived those titles. There was also a pivot that was initiated by Sylvia around 1999 to 2002. Um, towards economic theory. That was really important. I mean, in a more practical way, what happened is that doing that series flushed us with some some money um, because the royalties we were getting from MIT at that point were uh, close to zero. Right. Uh, The the check we, we, we were getting every year. So it was hard to pay some advance for some books. So like I think the editorial meetings we were having, there was a lot of the discussions were about the fact that we couldn't really publish. Um, you know, it was like, well, we can't really do that because we, we can't afford it. So Silver and you, Chris, you had a lot of ideas, but we always had to kind of slash the list and do the ones, you know, only choose one of them. Just think yeah. well. So what happened is that we then were able to say yes to everything, more or less, that we wanted to do without having to have these arguments. Yeah, that was really excellent. So that's why the list grew. And by growing the list, other titles did very well, and we became more of a thing of, of, of the moment and not something... I mean, I think I remember when I was telling people I was working for Semiotext, often I would hear, like, Things like, oh, they're still around, or, <laughs> or uh, 
you know, that it was something in people's mind that was really stuck in the 80s. Right. Actually, the big project before the re you know, the sort of like third incarnation is um, the Amira Haas book. Yeah, that was huge. And there was this whole sort of story with Susan Sontag writing an introduction or like a sort of preface to the book. Uh, but then Amira thinking that the preface was not... Uh, do you remember that? Like that I do. Was, it was too not hard-lined enough. Uh, so Amira Haas was this, um, is this Israeli reporter who wrote this dispatch from Ramallah about the sort of material life of, of people in the occupied territories. For because the, we have For Aretz. Yes. The um, Israeli newspaper. And so we collected them in a, in a volume that did very well. It did. It did. There was another thing that happened around that time that seems important, the intervention series. Uh, that came later. The thing that happened around that time was um, bringing Jean Baudrillard in New York. That's true. Yeah, when, the, when uh, we released The Conspiracy of Art. Well, okay, if we're not going to skip to interventions yet, could we talk a little bit about the, um, the archival books? Because that's quite different from the theory books that we did. Okay, so what I remember was, was um, you, had a, you had a Thanksgiving party in like 2000 or something like that in uh, Crestline. After, after dinner... Silver showed me all of the old issues of semiotext that I had never seen before, like the schizoculture, autonomia, and the German issue, and sort of like told me the story of how those issues came about. And I just thought they were really incredible, the way they looked and the sort of urgency in how they were made and... Um, the story behind it, and I thought we should um, we should definitely put them back in print. The only one that was in print was Polysexuality, which was made in uh, the early 80s and has been very influential in the art world. Could you elaborate a little bit on what the schizoculture event was and what autonomy is and, and what these issues are featured for people that aren't familiar? The schizoculture issue came out in 77 and I think it was like the sixth or seventh issue of the magazine. Uh, the magazine at first was this very sort of academic thing that circulated, you know, uh, maybe more in the academic milieu. Skill Culture was a conference that uh, Silver and John Rashman organized uh, in 75 that brought people like uh, Michel Foucault, Gilles Deleuze, uh, Félix Guattari, but also other, I mean... People uh, like John Cage and William Burroughs, I think, as well. So it took place in Columbia University in 1975. And um, so Jean-François Lyotard, uh, William Brooks, Michel Foucault, uh, John Cage, Gilles Deleuze, uh, Tigras Atkinson, and there were like workshops on feminism and therapy, gay liberation, uh, mental patients liberation, prison politics, etc., etc. And so the 
the issue that came out two years later had some of the talk from the from the conference, but also interviews with um, various artists and writers uh, from the, the Lower East Side or the downtown, like John Jono and Philip Glass and um, and famously Jack Smith. So that's what uh, and that's the first. I think I remember Sylvia telling me the magazine sold out. I think it was, like, it was a print run of 3,000 copies and it sold out within a week. And that one, the artist's theory got kind of mixed. Yeah, no, I think it was really, you, you did. You reprinted Schizoculture and created events around it and the German issue. And um, it was really important that the journal come out again in a new context. But I mean, another thing archivally that I had in mind was what we did with the David Warnerowitz book, which felt like a kind of pivotal moment to me. That was, I mean, artistically to me, that was really important, that book. That was one of the projects, you know, that had been kind of pending on the back burner for God knows how long. I mean, basically since David Warnerowitz's death in 1992. Sylvia had greatly admired him and sought him out and done this long, long interview with David Wanerowitz while he was still alive, while he was sick. Um, and after he died, in the several months after his death, he went around and he collected these very, he did very long, long interviews, two or three hours, with everyone he could find who had collaborated with David in any way. And these interviews were transcribed, and then they sat in the closet for 10 or 14 years. When we picked it up in 2005, Sylvia wanted to finish it. But his original vision of the book was that it would be a highly edited kind of choral piece, like like George Plimpton's Edie Sedgwick biography, where there would be little fragments of each speaker grouped around a chorus of of voices, that it would be a completely edited work. And we looked at the transcripts, and I remember, Hetty, you reading the transcripts and saying, these are fascinating. And so I think you made this decision that instead of editing it that way, we were going to publish the transcripts more or less verbatim, these eight or 10,000 word interviews, 10 or 12 or 14 years after the fact, with people who were speaking in a very honest and straightforward and uncensored way about their relationships and rivalries and kind of daily life of this artistic community in the East Village at that moment. And instead of a a geography, it became something else. It became a really kind of truthful, kind of critical biographical portrait of Wanerowitz, of that group of people and of that moment. And I I thought that was amazing. I mean, totally. When I worked on the Acker biography a few years ago, I imported those ideas, you know, of looking at the whole text. A very different kind of book is the book in the Intervention series. How, how long after you start making these facsimile books do you start making the Small Intervention series books? Well, so we were still publishing um, at that point. You know, we still had all of the native agent projects of um, of Chris, like Eileen's Eileen Miles collected essays, the importance of being Iceland, Iceland. and the first novel of uh, Veronica Gonzalez, Twin Time. So we had um, this whole this whole list going, plus 
Silver was uh, focusing on um, Italian philosophers that he had met um, during the autonomia uh, moment when he um, assembled the um, the issue uh, called Autonomia in, I think, 1982. So we published Before the Solar at Work and other titles. And at that point, we republished Autonomia, his diary of going to Italy and meeting with everybody and um, a very detailed diary that he had kept while traveling for the issue. I think the coming insurrection came out in 2009. Mm -hmm. And Autonomia has that, the magazine from 82 has that thing, which I, I reused, that design element with the square and intervention series in the bottom of the magazine. So we had acquired the right to the coming insurrection and from... Um, from the French publisher, and I thought, well, that would be the perfect way to relaunch this. And after sort of erasing that small format of foreign agents by republishing the books in the larger format, I thought, well, now that we erased it, let's bring it back up in, in a new incarnation. Right. And I too put a lot of constrictions on us in terms of deadline and preparation. And we thought that if we revive this, you know, small format intervention series, that we it could be a bit quicker and more spontaneous and more topical. Yeah. So what was the editorial process in deciding which kind of texts went into those books? What really happened, so the thing with MIT was that we're not allowed to sell our own books contractually, you know. So when Chris talks about the restriction, it's more the, the sort of span of time that it takes to announce a book and then which is growing even more now with the new distribution, right? So it's like you have to announce a book almost a year or a, little, a bit more than a year in advance. Mm. And with this new series, we were maybe going to do uh, something where we're going to not exactly self-distribute, but we made a deal where we could just sell it as it appeared. So we could have something coming out, you know, that was more topical, let's mm. say. And... But what happened is the first title, The Coming Insurrection, became such a big hit with Glenn Beck, um, <laughs> who's um, a, sort of a right-wing yeah, Fox, Fox News. Fox News yeah. I mean, who was, because as he got kicked out of Fox News, um, had it on his show and told all of his audience to buy it and that it was the most, what did he call it? The most dangerous thing. The most evil yeah. book, the most evil book in America. Yeah. The most evil book in America. And uh, so we, I think we sold around like 80,000 copies or something like that, <laughs> I mean, over, over time, but it, it became number one on Amazon. <laughs> which is really weird for a small independent press. So that's, that's what launched the series. And then I guess we just had to follow up with other things. It became another series. I mean, I think what, what happened is that some titles 
that would have maybe been published in another format than ended up falling into that format now. Mm. Yes. The intervention series. So after the, you have this kind of big success with the first one, where do you go with it after that? I guess we mixed it up. You know, uh, Chris decided to um, publish Jared Kobach's first novel, a work of fiction, really. I mean, about one of the pilot, one of the terrorists from uh, 9-11 into the series. And I remember talking to um, people at MIT that thought that were really against the idea of mixing fiction and art um, theory or other things into the series and keeping it like much more sort of uh, straight-faced activism. But they were wrong. Yeah, oh, I don't know if they were wrong, but we didn't want it to be just one thing. Yeah, we didn't want to just recreate foreign agents. It wasn't the form that mattered so much as the, as the topicality of it and the atmosphere and the vibe of it. So in the end, interventions ends up being an assortment of critical theory, activist text, some fiction, and some art criticism and art theory. I mean, whatever feels very current and urgent at the moment, and also, I guess, short. Everything in that series tends to be on the shorter side, right? With some exceptions. I mean, Jackie Wan, Castle Capitalism, is, is pretty um, long. So was Mauricio Lazzarato uh, governing by that? Yeah, so it's quite a mix of things. We did Jackie Wang's Cultural Capitalism a few years ago. Sometimes we consciously attempt to kind of compensate for blind spots. Yeah. You know, um, we felt like we were really short American politics. Mm. And so we've known Jackie for years, and luckily she was, she was working on this stuff, and so that was a happy confluence to do that book with her, it felt very, very important at that moment, still is. And also we felt there was a big blind spot with um, anything from Mexico. So Vera and I go, both, both of us go to Mexico a lot. We're two and a half hours from Mexico living in LA. Um, there's all this really important work being done there journalistically. And so in this case, our friend Ben Ehrenreich in LA connected us with the journalist Sergio Gonzalez Rodriguez, and we did two or three projects with him. And that felt very important at that moment too, to sort of like bring the Mexican situation into the picture. Yeah, so Sergio um, Gonzalez Rodriguez sadly passed uh, last year, and he was the the character in uh, Roberto Bellagno 2666, who goes to like City Juarez and he investigates all of the murders of um, the people working in factories. The Juarez femicides. He's like a cultural yeah. writer in Mexico City and he's going through a divorce and he needs to pick up extra work and they send him to Juarez at the beginning of the femicides and that becomes his mission for the next 10 years, including death threats, which, you know, no doubt led to his extremely premature death. And the kidnapping, which he recounted in a short story that we published as part of our series of pamphlets, 28 pamphlets we created for the when we were invited at the Whitney Biennial in uh, 2014. Mm. So he wrote about this kidnapping in, in, uh, in one of them. So yeah, so that, that's the intervention series. 
when you're editing the books that you publish, Jackie Wang's book is probably a good example of you have kind of poetry in there and you have theory. And Chris, you talked about thinking through the distinction of kind of theory and practice in the that first imprint that you brought in previously. Do these distinctions kind of, do you think through these distinctions when you're editing titles? Do you treat them differently or to what degree are they helpful? Because a lot of your books really kind of veer between various forms and various genres and kind of forms of literature. And I was wondering how you guys think about that as editors. Well, I mean, I think it's ideas first for us. It's always ideas first. And then ideas flow through different forms. So since we're not formally an academic press, we don't have to be so rigid about genre, say as maybe MIT proper does or other university presses. We want to work with what interests us and what feels important. And that can take a lot of forms. And I mean, the world that we move in, I think, culturally, is at this point a very hybrid world. The distinctions between genres and forms are not as important as the, I don't know, as the topicality, the vibe, the affinity, the urgency of it. Mm. Uh, I think also like we're amateurs, uh, publishers. I mean, uh, that's not my background. Uh, that's right. not my background <laughs> either. Maybe Silver is the closest to, but also Silver always never wanted to be a professional publisher. I know, it's so funny, Hedy, you keep rejecting that role. Every time it seems to be kind of like, you know, over the hill possibly that, oh yes, we could professionalize, we could add another person, we could do 20 books a year instead of 10. Um, you've consistently rejected that. And I've come to see that that's absolutely right. Why, 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 why is that? I mean, there's a sort of freedom in not having to go to board meetings and editorial committees and deciding usually the way informally that we've, uh, we've done it is if there's a project. So because I'm, I'm a French speaker, even though I've been in the U.S. for 30 years, uh, almost 30 years, I bring a lot of French novels uh, to the press, uh, like the Mathieu Landon learning what love means about his friendship with Michel Foucault and Hervé Guibert, or uh, Michel Léris recently. Or the... So I get the French press, uh, and if something's interesting, I read it. Uh, and if, if I really like it, I... You know, I asked, I talked to Chris or Silver about it. Um, Chris cannot read it, so she has to trust me. Um, you know, so there's always, there's always a little, um, you know, I'm always a little bit um, anxious when the book is translated and she reads right. it. And then they're great. I just read the Guillaume Stan and it's so great. Or like Marie Dariusek, um, the the little book about Paula Becker, but the the title that I the titles that I choose fits with other things or mirror other things that we've done in the past. I mean, you could say that Marie Dariusek mirrors Kate Zambrino a little bit, uh, heroines. There's a sort of connection. Like I'm not gonna bring something completely out of the out of the blue. 
There's all of these little lineages and tendencies and dreams within the list at this point that all animate each other and illuminate each other in this really satisfying way. Or like um, returning to Reims, the Didier Ribon a memoir. So we don't decide anything. There's discussions and then there's projects that we like. I mean, I think the only thing that we're trying to do is never to get pigeonholed into some very, you know, firm mm. identity or structure. Do you find that being smaller allows you to develop different kinds of relationships with authors as well? Yeah, or like a sort of like, I mean, we're smaller, but also we have a lot of collaborators, like Mackenzie Walk will mm. send us something, or Aline Miles sent Michel T. first novel to Chris, or we also really open uh, to what people that are in our circle, uh, translators and the, for example, one book that's done uh, very well for us, that was very well received, is Ike Gessler's um, memoir of working at Amazon, Seasonal Associate. Uh, that came from um, Chris's um, German translator. And friend yeah. of many years, Kevin Veneman. Yeah, who um, said, you guys should do this. And then we say yes uh, right away. So I think this is, we're small, but we're also very open to other people's. They understand what, what we do and, and the press. And there's this sort of like exchange and collaboration. Exactly. It's, like, it's a very kind of associative process. You know, I, I think together we've created a kind of community of semiotech collaborators and things flow through that community in an associative way. We're not kind of aggressively seeking projects. Occasionally we'll do something that comes to us from completely outside, but it's rare. And in the rare cases that we have, they turn out to be hidden connections that arise later on. It's a very self-selecting group. Mm. So maybe now would be a good time to talk about some of the books that you've got forthcoming, some of the stuff that's coming out and some of the areas that you are working in at the minute. Yeah. Yeah, in the fall, we have um, Stephanie Lacava's beautiful first novel called The Super Rationals. Mm -hmm. coming out in Native Agents in the fall. And you know how we're talking about these different kind of streams or tendencies? I think when John Kelsey translated Michelle Bernstein, All the King's Horses, her faux tabloid novel that she self-published in the 60s, The Situation of Michelle Bernstein, we published that 15 years ago, maybe. And that kind of kicked off a little kind of subset of books that are like the young girl novel, you know, this kind of cosmopolitan art world setting, young woman in her 20s navigating the city. And we've done a number of novels that you could describe in that way. Most recently, maybe Natasha Stagg's book, her first novel, Surveys. The Super Rationals kind of, you know, of course it's more than that too, but it fits into that lineage in a way. Um, it's a really sharp and beautiful book. Benjamin Moser just, just wrote a terrific blurb for that. So that's coming out in the fall. I think that's the only fiction book that, I'm work that I've been working on recently. But together, 
Patty and I and several other people have been doing this enormous project with our friend, the photographer, Reynaldo Rivera, that will come out this summer. Could you talk about that, that project a little bit? Chris met Reynaldo in the 90, in the late 90s via um, our friend Luis Baus who was working then at Skylight, which is a sort of bookstore in Los Angeles, like a really great ind independent bookstore. And um, Ronaldo um, shot the, was the official photographer for the Ch Chance event, which uh, Chris organized with Silver's help in the late 90s, this sort of rave, yeah, it was like a Samuel Tax Rave festival in the desert. In Las Vegas with Jean Baudrillard, Mike Kelly, Diana the Prima, DJ Spooky, uh, all sort of, and many other people. So, so yeah, Reynaldo had been a friend for a really long time. And he has this enormous body of work. And he is someone who has never exactly pursued a career in the art world. He, you know, showed occasionally, maybe in the 80s or 90s, in some small galleries, but he never, he never did that. Um, and he has a very wide and fascinating circle of friends. He definitely has friends in the mainstream kind of A-list gallery art world. He has friends in a lot of other communities as well. He has come, comes from this big family and his, one of his siblings was East LA punk and another sibling is a social worker. His partner is in radical democratic politics in LA. So he has all these interests, but he, and this terrific body of work. I don't remember how the project came about, but at one point, Hattie and I were talking with other people about how great it would be to present the work, you know. And he did a series in the late early and early 90s where he pretty much embedded himself. I mean, not just embedded, these were his friends. This was what he wanted to do. He was hanging out at the Latino drag bars in LA at that time. And all of the Latino drag bars were also transvestite bars. And, you know, this is very old school transvestite. He became friends with these people. He photographed them night after night. He photographed them backstage. He went to their homes. There are hundreds and hundreds of frames of this completely disappeared world. I think maybe it came up for me in conversation. Ronaldo and I were hanging out and he was talking about that body of work and how much he wanted to present it because of the changes in LA. Um, this world has completely disappeared. I think maybe someone that he knew, he had learned recently of their death. Um, a lot of these people ended up displaced and homeless and vulnerable to all kinds of diseases that you catch when you're living in the street or in very kind of makeshift housing. Um, this was at the height of, you know, um, the moment when everybody realized that a certain you know, a certain definition of LA was definitely over forever. It was like, you know, slam dunk, another metropolitan city. It's London, it's Berlin, it's New York. It's not the LA that we knew. Reynaldo had recently been reminded of one of these people, I think, because he learned that she died. And so the 
idea came about that the book would be both a way to bring his work to a bigger art world audience, but also it would be an homage for this disappeared city. These vast communities of people who, as Ronaldo says in one of the essays in the book, you know, the Latino community in LA is so easily displaced and leaves so few traces of itself. And so this was also an effort to leave a trace of that world. You've also got another book coming out by Maurizio Lazzarato. And um, what is it about the kind of neo-Marxism that comes out of Italy that you find really enriching? Why is that a kind of school of thought that you keep publishing? I would say as somebody who has like zero philosophical or critical theory background, um, what interests me most are the books that talk about, that explain to me how things really work. And I think that's a tendency that the, the critical theory books that we do, I don't like things that are rhetorical or that are, you know, that are programmatic necessarily. I like things more that are investigative and that reveal the internal workings of things. And I think maybe that describes some of those books. Yeah, certainly how uh, Moiso Lazzarato wrote about that in those two volumes uh, and the way that he wrote about war with uh, Eric Elias in Wars and Capital and in the new book sort of kind of takes some of these ideas further. Okay, well, maybe the last thing I'll ask you is um, not the stuff that you're publishing now, but kind of further down the line. Um, are there any kind of areas that you're really excited to publish work in that, you, that you're kind of yet to get round to? Uh, I think also, like, I want to talk about, um, you know, just quickly about, yeah. like, our timing, because I feel like we're very lucky with that. Or, you know, not exactly lucky, but like weirdly in sync, I think. You know, with sometimes what we put out. Like Ike Gessler, for example, the book came out when Amazon was doing this sort of bidding war in, in America about where they were going to have right. their warehouse. Right. Yeah. It was, Amazon was on the front page of the Times every day. So like this always like a weird kind of books come out at a moment or the Andrea Dworkin book coming out right before me. I mean, it came out after Me Too, but we started working on it before Me Too, obviously. And, uh, and how that coincided with something that was really uh, in people's mind and how she sort of came back as, as this figure so there's a weird timing thing that's always a bit uncanny I don't, I don't know like right now with the the virus and like people are making these this are trying to conflate AIDS and the coronavirus um the Hervé Guibert book is being republished and every reviews is um Right, you know, it's it's being reviewed in book form and in the Baffler and like all, and people are, and the book is strangely relevant. Or his attitude towards uh, illness and death has like a sort of strange relevance. Yeah. So I don't know what that is. Chris, do you want to talk about the, the book you're working on with Cecilia? Yeah, Cecilia Pavan. Um, this is another book. I mean, we're finally doing the book, but Cecilia Pavan has been someone who I feel has been kind of part of our picture for many years now. Um, she and I met in person like 
six or seven years ago. She's translated some of my work in Spanish. We read each other's work. Um, her work has started to come out in English from some micro presses because a lot of other writers that we're close to, people like Ariana Reigns, have picked up on it and find it very, Cecilia's work is very important to them. So we are doing a collected fiction of Cecilia's, which we hope will kind of bring her work to, I don't know, another level of being read in English in Europe and the US. And hopefully she'll come over for it. These projects, you know, sometimes the project is isolate, but more often the project is part, relates back to other projects and relates to other ongoing friendships and relationships and future work. And one project that I'm really looking forward to is um, the first volume of Serge Danet um, collected uh, criticism, film criticism, which has been in the work for a very, very long time and has moved in different translators' hands. And I mean, I think, I think it's like that project was, I wanted to do it maybe like seven or eight years ago. And mm -hmm. it's just been, it's a, it's a massive undertaking and it's just been sort of very hard to put together. And it's finally happening. And um, I'm really looking forward to put that out. I think maybe that's a difference of our kind of strange little business model from the norm is that there's such a long, long gestation for these projects. You know, it's not like there's a bunch of submissions and we look at them on X date and decide the season for 18 months later. I mean, these projects always, they've been hanging around for a long, long time. Yeah, with some, and sometimes they happen quickly. It really depends. Should we, should we leave it there? Thank you so much for asking us to do this. No, thanks so much for agreeing to do it. It's been, it's been really interesting and I think people are going to really enjoy listening to what, all the stuff that you've been talking about. Yeah, thank you. Great. All right, great. You're more than welcome. All well, right, thanks, Sam. All the best.